All right, tonight we return to the subject of law and gospel. We don't have time to review everything we did this morning to about two hours of teaching this morning. Just remind ourselves just of a very, very few things. Uh, number one, we definitely tried to, I tried to speak of and explain the importance of the distinction between law and gospel. That other than justification, the distinction between law and gospel is a, an essential doctrine. We talked about in some of our, the theses that we looked at, why it's so important, and we will review some of them in a, in a minute. But, this is one of those series that I want everyone to really, really, really pay attention to. And no matter what, all the other content I add to it, I hope you'll try to listen to it, mainly because I think so many people don't understand the distinction between law and gospel, or at least a proper distinction. And it's, it leads to so many doctrinal issues. So we're trying our best to figure this out. And one of the ways we're doing this is we're looking at 25 theses on the distinction between law and gospel. I'm taking the, the, well, I'm modifying the 25 Theses because I'm changing them up each time I give them to you from a book called God's No and God's Yes, The Proper Distinction Between Law and Gospel. Um, this was based off a number of lectures that were given on uh, the Lutheran Hour a long time ago. And um, I'm, well, I'm taking them and trying to modifying them. Some of, the, some of their thesis I'm leaving out like entire parts of it because I disagree with it, but, but we're still trying to retain the basic concept, all right? So, I don't have time to go back through everything, just make sure we understand. What is law? Okay, everyone, everyone should remember from this morning, when we talked about law, what are we referring to? God telling us to do something in order to be... Saved, all right? Everybody remember that? Do this to live. Do this to be saved. And gospel is? Christ has done this so you can live, or Christ has done this so you can be saved, or you will be saved, depending on how we want to look at that. All right, and we, and we have to draw a distinction. Why do we have to draw a distinction? Because the Bible seems to have a contradiction on this subject, Yes? Because the Bible, in one case, seems to say that we are saved apart from the law. and other parts, it seems to indicate that we're saved by what we do. How do we reconcile this? And we looked at all the different ways people have tried. Well, not all the different ways, but some of the ways people have offered to do so. So we're looking at these 25 theses. Everybody ready to, re- to review the ones we've already covered? All right, here we go. Number one, the first thesis we looked at. Thesis number one was... All right, the doctrinal contents of the entire Bible is made up of two doctrines differing fundamentally from each other. All right, everybody remember that? The doctrinal content of the entire Bible is made up of two doctrines differing fundamentally from each other, and those two doctrines are law and gospel. Please note, they differ from each other. Meaning that there has to be a distinction made. They have to be kept apart. Everybody remember that? Okay. Thesis number two. The only person who can be considered an orthodox teacher is someone who can properly distinguish between law and gospel. Now, that you say, well, I'm not a teacher. I don't need to worry about it. I will argue anyone who wants to be an orthodox Christian needs to be able to distinguish properly between law and gospel. So I don't think that we should not just place the responsibility for behind the pulpit as responsibility of everyone sitting in the pew to understand this. Number three. Of Christians in general. Right? Rightly distinguishing law and gospel is the most difficult and highest art of Christians in general. This is the thing you should struggle with. This is the thing you must master. This is the thing you must understand is how to distinguish this. And so many people do not. So far, so good. Number four. All right, stay. All right. The, The correct understanding of law and gospel or the correct understanding of the distinction between law and gospel is essential to a correct understanding of the Bible. A correct understanding of the distinction between law and gospel is essential to a correct understanding of the Bible. Without this correct understanding, the Bible becomes what? 
A sealed book. You do not properly understand it. That's a big statement. That's a big statement, is it not? We'll have to see how, how, if that holds true, if not holds true, right? Does anybody need me to repeat that? Are you sure? All right, here we go. Next. All right, the first way, the first manner of confounding or confusing law and gospel is the most easily recognized, and it is the worst. Now, this one is long, so we kind of break it down into individual sentences, but that's the first part, right? The first way which law and gospel is confused is the easiest to detect. Everyone should be able to detect it. Teenagers, kids, old people, everyone, all right? And it's the worst. And who has adopted this confused way? The Roman Catholic Church. Okay? A lot of other people have as well, but we just went with them. Because if I named some of these other people, you'd be like, well, who are they? And when were they around? And what did they teach? And so we, we may work our way back to some of these other groups, but not right now. All right? And then we explained what this first way is. And this first way of confounding law and gospel is this, that Christ is represented as a new Moses or lawgiver, and the gospel is turned into basically a doctrine of works. Everybody remember that? Yes? Okay, can someone give me an example of how this happens? Okay. Okay, right. All right, so the Roman Catholic Church, this is what it would say. If you, were, if you were to say, look, we are saved by grace. We are not saved by keeping the law. On one hand, they would say, we agree. But what law would they be referring to? The Old Testament. But they would say that does not mean you're not saved from keeping the law of Christ. And what would be considered the law of Christ? Well, you, you should all know it very well. It's preached all the time. You know where it's found? Everybody open their Bibles really quick. Go to the Gospel of Matthew. Go to the Gospel of Matthew. You should know it. It shows up really early in the Gospels. Starts in chapter 5. What is that known as? Well, the Beatitudes is the beginning of a sermon. Sermon on the Mount. And what chapter does it stop? Chapter 7. And somewhere in that sermon, see who can find it first, you should find these words, Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Tell me who can find that somewhere between Matthew 5 and 7. 5 what? 48. Look at Bobby. Bobby's already got it. Boom. All right. Everybody see it? Be perfect. So the law of Christ demands that you are what? That you're perfect. Now, if you read through the Sermon on the Mount and you're even like remotely honest, what should your reaction be by the time you finish the Sermon on the Mount? What should it be? Woe is me, I am undone, I'm a sinner, and there's no way. But how is it typically preached within the evangelical church? You want to be happy. You want a good life. Follow the Sermon on the Mount. Follow the Sermon on the Mount. It's preached as you can follow it. You should follow it. You must follow it. And in fact, when I, if you've listened to my series on the Sermon on the Mount, as I was reviewing sermons from a friend's church in Nebraska, or actually the church is located in Council Bluffs, Iowa, what did their, his preacher say? The Sermon on the Mount proves whether you're saved or not saved. How do you know you're saved? You follow the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't follow the Sermon on the Mount, you're not saved. So I made a joke with my friend. Well, obviously, nobody in my church is saved because I don't think anyone in my church has ever come close to the Sermon on the Mount, including me. And guess what I believe about his church? The same thing. So why would you preach it that way? When they preach it that way, what did they just do to the gospel? 
They just destroyed it. So what were you going to say? Meritorious law keeping. Meritorious works. Right? You keep it, you're saved. They just went basically Roman Catholic. So I made a joke. I made a joke. I'm like, you're more Catholic than probably some of the Catholic churches in Omaha. We're not Catholic. Yeah, you are. That's Catholicism. You just turned the entire Sermon on the Mount into a new law given by a new Moses, which is Christ. And if you don't keep that law, you're not saved. That is Roman Catholicism disguised as a Bible church in Council Bluffs, Iowa. Now, I know you're saying, well, you probably don't make lots of friends that way. I know, but someone's got to tell them that. Right? That was number one, number two, number three, number four, number five. That leads to number six. All right. The word of God is not rightly divided. When the law is not preached in its fullness or in its full sternness, and when the gospel is not preached in its full sweetness or in its fullness. Or when the two are mingled. So, the word of God is not rightly divided when the law is not preached fully, when the gospel is not preached fully, or when you mingle them. When they become mixed. Okay? All right, I'm not going to go back and repeat some of the other illustrations we talked about. Anyone need me to repeat that one? I'm trying to make, I'm trying to speed up here. We got that one? Good. Do you need me to repeat it? She's still writing? Okay, all right. That would bring us to number seven, which is the word of God is not rightly divided when the gospel is preached first and then the law. In other words, they have to be preached in the correct order. What's the correct order? Law first, gospel second. You don't preach sanctification first, you preach justification first. Right? Does that make sense? You don't preach faith first, you preach repentance first. You don't preach good works first, you preach grace first. Right? Or does that make sense? In other words, you don't, you don't tell everyone to do good works. You gotta rem- what should motivate the good works? God's grace. In other words, there's a correct order in how to do this. Second. Yeah, that's, that's the word of God is not rightly divided when you mess up the order. And why does the order have to be right? If you bring someone the gospel and like, hey, hey, look, here's the gospel. Typically, a lot of times in youth conferences or in youth group, it's preached this way. Hey, you need the gospel because if you're lonely or if you don't have any friends or if you're going through all the confusion of being a teenager, the gospel will fix it. No, the gospel is not there to fix all of those problems. The gospel is to fix which problem? The problem of the law condemning you. So you've got to show them their condemnation by the law, and the gospel is the solution to that. We always preach Jesus. Sometimes people preach Jesus as a solution to the wrong thing. Does that make some kind of sense? All right. Did we stop there? All right. Then we're to number eight. All right. Number eight. The word of God is not rightly divided when the law is preached to those who are already in terror on account of their sins or the gospel to those who live securely in their sins. The word of God is not rightly divided when the law is preached to those who are already in terror on account of their sins or the gospel to those who live securely in their sins. So what does this seem to indicate? You've got to know when law is needed and when gospel is needed. If someone is completely destroyed about their sin, overwhelmed with their sin, distraught with their sin, what do you need to give them? The gospel. Now this is very, very, very important. In many evangelical churches, if you come to me with like, hey, I'm struggling with this sin. I'm having this problem. Maybe it's something, uh, it can be with a million things. It could be, 
We could go through all the possible sins it could be, but you're struggling with it. You're guilty of it. You're in shame of it. You're embarrassed by it. You you want it to stop. What what, What is usually offered to Christians who are struggling with it like that? Usually you're giving a three-step program or a five-step program. What you need to do is this. See, first you need to do this, and then you need an accountability partner, and then you need to join a small group, and then you need to read your Bible more, and then you need to memorize some scripture, and then you need to try this, and then you get into the discipleship program, and then you need to start showing up on Wednesday night, and then you need to do this, and then you need to pray a little bit more, and then you need to get a partner who will pray with you, and then you need to do this, and hey, you need to get rid of that friend, and you got to stop hanging out with those people, and you need to stop listening to that music and you need to stop watching those movies so what is given to you as your solution law law has law ever helped a sinner no it only condemns the sinner right it doesn't help them in their sin if they already know that they're sinning they don't need more rules what do they need to hear The grace of God is sufficient. You are forgiven. You have been saved. Your sins have been washed away. Now, if someone is just living in open sin and just doing whatever they want and they don't care, they don't need the gospel, then what do they need to hear? What you're doing is an abomination to God. It is a sin. Then they need to hear the law. Sometimes we are like really bad doctors prescribing the wrong thing at the wrong time for the wrong thing. And guess what? You do great damage to people. Isn't that sometimes confusing about Jesus? A woman caught in adultery. I mean, straight up caught in in the act. Was there any words of condemnation? It's in John 8, right? In, you look at it. John chapter 8. Everybody look at it. Now, I know there's some who don't believe it belongs in the text. I understand there's some manuscript issues. But just for now, we'll just look at We won't get into all of the issues about it. But John chapter 8. They bring the woman, right? She's caught in adultery. What, what's Jesus' first words to her? His first words to her. Where are your accusers? Has no man condemned thee? And then what else does he say? What? Say, Neither do I condemn you. Wow. What would we say to her? How did you get in this mess? You know now that you've committed adultery. You can't do this and you can't do this and you can't do that. You may be forgiven, but there's going to be consequences. And blah, 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 blah. Oh, and we may go, wait a minute, give me a second. And then we go call 10 people and tell everyone that she just found out she committed adultery. Yes? However, when Jesus walked into the temple, what did he do? Was he telling anyone, I don't condemn you? Does that ever confuse you? It confuses me. So I'm like, wait, Jesus, this person, you're like, you're good. And this person, you're like, you're condemned. You're a child of the devil. You're a whitewashed tomb. You're a clean glass on the outside, but in the inside, you're filthy. And you're like, Jesus, why, why are you so harsh on these people? Because those who know their sin, he gave them Grace and those who didn't, or those who were living blatantly in their sin, he gave them law. Yes, I'll read the second part. Okay, um, hang on, I'll, I'll give this here. And uh, the word of God is not rightly divided when the law is preached to those who are already in terror on account of their sins, or the gospel to those who live securely in their sins. If you shorten that, that's by it's perfectly okay to shorten it. How, if you were to rate yourself, how good do you think you are on knowing when to preach gospel and when to preach law? What do you think? Confession time. What do you think? I think the more you realize your own sin, the better you are at offering gospel. 
Okay, I think that's true. Um, I just think that what we have, here's our t- tendency, uh, let's just be honest. We, we really don't, and I know this, you're not going to like the way I say this, but I just think it's true. I think deep down we don't really believe the gospel does much. Like if someone's, you know, if one of the teenagers says, hey, I'm struggling with all of this, my first thought is, okay, I got to give them some things to do, right? I got to give them a 10-step program. Okay, do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do, do. And, and sometimes instead of just saying, you do know that Christ died for your sins. You do know that your sins have been forgiven. You do know your sins have been removed as far as the east. It almost seems counterintuitive for us to say that to someone who is talking about their sin. What we want to say is, here's the ten ways to fix it, right? Again, I want to make sure you hear this. I know this is not one of the points, but I'm going to stress this over and over. We are wired by our nature, even within our depravity. We are law-based creatures. Gospel is foreign to our way of thinking. It goes against our way of thinking. I mean, just be honest. If, if someone comes to you tonight, they call you tonight at 9 o'clock tonight and go, hey, I committed this sin and I'm struggling with this sin, you know your first words, you're gonna, you almost are going to immediately start trying to formulate a plan. I can't speak for women. I think maybe, maybe it's a guy thing because we want to fix the problem. But I think even women, I think even Christian women will do the same thing. Here's what you need to do. You need to stop this. You need to do this. You need to get rid of this. You need to get rid of that. You need to get rid of this. And it's like, why are you just giving me more? I've already messed up. I just violated 30 rules and you just gave me now 30 more. Thank you. I don't need more rules. Oh, no amens on that. Okay. No. Okay. It's true. But you almost feel like you're doing what if you give them gospel? What do you feel like you're doing? What? You do what? Excuse me. It's really hard as a parent. They come to your door. Mom, I need to talk to you. Right? Hey, I did this. I did this. I did this. I did this. And you're like, just trying to look normal. Okay. 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 Right. And by, but immediately you want to start. What are you doing? Why did you do that? Okay, you're going to do this, you're going to do, and you may, instead of just saying, well, let me preach the gospel to you, and that's, it, you see, it almost sounds like you could, it almost feels like you could not do that. Because we're wired to go, okay, starting tomorrow, we're going to do these 10 things to fix this. They probably, because we don't feel like the gospel's really going to change anything. In fact, we may feel like the gospel, and I think you said it, would do what? Excuse it. Make them feel okay about it. Oh, that's hard, isn't it? Isn't it? Next time your kid comes to you and they've messed up. Okay, even forget theology, forget law and gospel. Just try to just try to simply say, I love you and I forgive you, and it's okay. It's forgotten. And just don't say another word. Okay. Oh, and I know all those all the kids are looking at Mary going, Okay, I know what I'm gonna be doing tonight. Okay, I'm burning down the neighbor's house. Okay. All right. And she's going to just not say a word to me, okay? And if she does, I'm going to say, Pastor, she said mean things to me. Okay, okay, all right. It would be hard, right? Impossible. Okay, <laughs> impossible. Okay, okay, well, that's good. But <laughs> she's like, well, what else could I do? Neighbor, I don't care. But the point is, it would be hard to do. But it, if you can do that, it just, it's, it's hard sometimes to offer grace and mercy. But man, when you get ready, when you get ready to say something to them, five seconds later, you are looking to God to give you what? Grace and mercy. It's hard. Because we don't think that way. Yeah, okay. All right, next. What number? Nine. All right. The word of God is not rightly divided. When sinners who have been struck down and terrified by the law are directed not to the word but to their own prayers and wrestling with God in order that they may win their way into a state of grace. In other words, when they're told to keep on praying and struggling, when they feel that God 
has uh, until they feel that God has received them into grace. So let's just summarize. This is long. Let's summarize this. The word of God is not rightly divided when this happens. When a sinner is overcome with guilt and are not directed to grace, but are directed to what we just kind of mentioned in the last one, actions, rules, steps, The word of God is not rightly divided when the sinner who's overcome with their sin, they're overcome with their guilt, is not directed to the word of God and to grace, but is directed to battle. You got to struggle. You got to do this. You got to do that. We think about it. Just think about what, just think about this. Let's say a woman calls you and she's struggling with being submissive to her husband, Right? What, 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 what advice would you think you would give them for the women in here? What advice would you give another woman who's struggling with being submissive to her husband? And she's acknowledging it. Don't like doing it. Talk back. Have an attitude. Whatever the case may be. What would you tell them? Yeah, girl, girl, same, okay. All right. That, that's... Don't know if that's really helpful, but okay. Girl, same. Goodbye. Click. I got... I got something to do, okay? <laughs> okay, so, in other words, don't call, St- don't call Stacy for help, okay? All right, that, that, that was not girl saying, okay? That's really good, all right. What would you have a tendency to do? A lot of women would go, oh, I know this book, and go give them a book. You're like, I'm struggling. And, and now what are you supposed to do? Well, it's a struggle. You're going to have to continue to struggle with it. I found that this helps. I find that if I leave for six months and not around him, it's easy to submit to him. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. That, okay. Okay. I, that's why I've been on a cruise for half a year because it's, man, when I'm on a cruise ship, it's, it's perfectly okay. He's at home. I'm on a cruise. It's submission is simple. Okay. Right. Whatever your solution is, but it's always about, Oh, it's a struggle, and how to, how to go through the struggle. It's not taken to the word of God and given grace. Now, within Lutheranism, they would point to the word and to the sacraments, because they believe the sacraments is a means of grace. But since we don't, we're not sacramental, I'm not going to mention sacraments here, uh, because they, they believe the sacraments are a means of grace. But we do believe that grace is found, obviously, in Christ, Yes? So we don't direct them to grace, we direct them to the battle. Does that make sense? And we, we, all can really, we all do that, right? So when someone is overcome with sin, we do not rightly divide the word of God. When instead of directing them to the word of God and to, to the grace of Christ, we direct them to the battle, to the struggle, to steps, to a plan, to a method. That's not helpful. And if you've ever struggled with sin and you've asked Christians for help, a lot of times you walk away going, there is no help. Because almost always, what does it come down to? What does it almost always come down to? Pray more. Study more. It's always study more, right? Study more. Go to church more. Now, you may need a small group because you can't, you know, you're not going to, it's not going to work in the sanctuary. You've got to be in a small group, right? You need an accountability partner. Right? That, that doesn't... Am I saying that none of those things can ever be helpful? I'm not saying they can't be helpful, but what do we always need to start with? If the person is overcome with sin, we need to start with the gospel. Is that helpful? Does anybody need me to read that one again? Yes? No? Possibly? Are we good? All right. Okay. What number is that? That was number nine. Okay. That brings us to number 10. All right. The word of God is not rightly divided when the preacher describes faith in a manner as if the mere acceptance of truths even while a person is living in mortal sins, now they're using the word mortal sins, renders that person righteous in the sight of God and saves him, 
or as if faith making a person righteous and saves him for the reason that it produces in him love and reformation of his mode of living. Okay, this one's going to take a minute to take apart, so don't write anything down, okay? This one's going to require a lot of work, right? Thinking caps on. All right, now, we're going to have to think this one through. We may change this one up. We may throw this one completely out, but let's think about it. Everybody thinking? All right. The word of God is not rightly divided. That's clearly the the theme they're following, right? The word of God is not rightly divided. The word of God is not rightly divided. Now, they're claiming the word of God is not rightly divided when the following things happen. Here we go. Number one, when the preacher describes faith in a manner as if the mere acceptance of truths even while a person is living in sin, renders that person in the sight of God and saves him. Now, I have a little problem with this. Right? Because this always, because what is this getting ready to lead to? This is getting ready to lead to a problem. All right. Now, we'll see if the second paragraph fixes the first one, but I don't think it is. All right, so let's try to think this through. So we got, we got to use this as a hypothetical, right? We just use this as a hypothetical, right? If I have person A standing on this side of the church, have person B standing on this side of the church, right? Okay. Both believe. Now, what always gets into question is we call into question the sincerity of one's faith. Do we not? And what do we usually base the sincerity of one's faith? Their actions. This makes it very, this complicates the matter beyond all, it it just, say it, it it convolutes it, it confuses it, it mixes it. Because now, this is very difficult, right? Because if I got two people, right, this one believes, this one believes, but this one is living in sin, this one isn't, We have a tendency to say the one who's living in sin obviously doesn't believe and the one who does or the one who isn't living in sin is the true believer. But does it always work out that way? That's the thing. Because immediately we're judging salvation based on someone's action. And actions... Put it this way, I can't judge someone's salvation on action if they're saved by what kind of a righteousness? Imputed. Because I can't see an imputed righteousness. But what we have a tendency to do in the evangelical world is we say it's imputed, but then we immediately say the imputed creates a practical. Well, the minute you say imputed produces a practical righteousness, you've just turned an imputed righteousness into an infused righteousness, which destroys evangelical Christianity and destroys the entire Protestant Reformation. So I'm not a fan of this. How was a person made righteous before God? By faith. Whatever, is that, how are you declared righteous before God? By faith. The minute I add any stipulation going, but, 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 if I just say that it's by faith without any works, then they're, they're just going to say they believe. We always want to question the sincerity. I, I don't know the sincerity of someone's belief. I do not know. Remember, you, for anyone who's been in this church my whole life, Bobby knows because you've been here forever, you know that I, I, I would never even tell my own kids if they're saved because I don't know. I can say you made a profession of faith. That's all I know. I don't know. I don't know anybody. Now, if you believe, guess what I can tell you? Your sins are completely forgiven. You're declared perfectly righteous before God. I don't know the sincerity of faith. It's impossible. How how many times have you heard the story of someone who was a deacon in their church and uh, they were taking their kids to church and they read their Bible and they listened to sermons and they were godly and today they're not even in church anymore. You don't know where they are. They got divorced, left their kids and family and you hear those stories all the time. Well, guess what? Everyone at that time would have said, They're saved, and the other person in that same church, who maybe missed church all the time, didn't read their Bible that much, guess what? You would have probably said they're not saved, and guess sometimes who's still going to church? 
the person everyone who called into question. It, I'm not a fan of this one. I'm not a fan of this. We may have to, re, we may have to re, redo this one, okay? We'll, we'll find a way to make it ours. That, uh, that, that while a person is living in mortal sin, renders that person righteous in the sight of God and saves him. So in other words, anyone who just says, hey, if you just accept these truths, right? If you just accept these truths, you're righteous. Now, we could argue, is faith simply the acceptance of certain truths? Now, this comes into question, what is faith? Right? You don't have to write anything down now because we're still trying to work through it. So let me ask you, what is faith? Okay. Well, Bobby's going full, full Calvinist there, which is good. Okay. Okay. Well, no, it's true. It's a gift of God. It's very true. I, I, I appreciate that. But if you define what faith is, because I think maybe they're trying to make a distinction here. I think that what they're trying to say is this person that they're describing, this hypothetical person, is someone who may not have faith. They just accept certain truths. So they're trying to draw a distinction between faith and just the acceptance of truth. But even, is that hard to distinguish? Right? If I ask someone, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, buried rose the third day, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and you say, I accept these truths. Well, how do I know? Do I say, well, okay, you accept the truth, but do you have faith? Like, trying to find that distinction. That I, I think I see where they're going with this. They want us to say that the acceptance of a truth does not equal faith. That you have to have faith to be declared righteous. I just don't know how, I don't know how you measure that. Right. It's in Hebrews 11, right? Is Hebrews 11 where we get the definition? Look at it. Hebrews 11, I think it's verse 1. Look at it really quick. So I don't know. I, don't, I think I see what they're trying to say here, but I, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily a fan of this one. Okay. What, what's the definition according to Hebrews 11? 1? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's, that, everyone loves to quote that as if it means something, but if I ask 50 people what that actually means, no one can really determine what that is, right? Does that tell you how to measure it? Does that tell you how to see it? Does that tell you how you can determine who has it and who doesn't? James would tell you that it requires works to show your faith, okay, which then leads to lots of other questions, right? I am. Because, again, the people in Matthew 7 did all kinds of great works and obviously didn't prove they had faith. So you were right back. I, I'm, not a, I'm not a fan of this one. So let me read it again and see if we can find a different way of stating it. All right, here we go. The word of God is not rightly divided when the preacher describes faith. Well, see, he's saying he's describing faith. So I take it back. They're, they're even using the word faith. When he describes faith in a manner as if mere acceptance of truths even while a person is living in sin, renders that person righteous in the sight of God. I guess what they're trying to say is that's not really faith. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah, I, I think this destroys the whole argument, right? Yeah. Which is very Catholic, is it not? <laughs> very Catholic. Okay. Well, you'd have to find the list. Right. I'm not a... Well, well, unless you believe in a distinction between mortal and venial. Yeah, I'm not a fan of this one. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, exactly. Okay, or, they, the, the second part is, or, as if faith makes a person righteous and saves him for the reason that it produces in him love and reformation of his mode of living. Now, this is bizarre because like, it's also wrong to say that faith makes a person righteous and saves him for the reason that it produces in him love and reformation. You can't say that either. 
So they believe that second part is wrong, which I agree, but the first part seems to contradict everything. So what would we say here? Yeah, that's the rest of it. Okay, well, what I wanted us to do is we're going to rewrite it. I want us to rewrite it. And I want you to help me, all right? So that's what we're going to do here, all right? So let's take their basic premise, the first premise. The word of God is not rightly divided when the preacher describes faith in a manner as if the mere acceptance of truths, even while a person is living in mortal sin, renders that person righteous in the sight of God. Let's say this. Let's do this. The word of God is not rightly divided when the preacher describes faith as that which produces love, reformation of his mode of living. In other words, the, the word of God is not rightly divided when I preach that if you believe, it will change you. Because that destroys faith as being getting imputed righteousness. It would describe faith as producing an infused righteousness. So the word of God is not rightly divided when someone preaches faith as the thing that produces a reformation, a love, a change inside the person. Faith is accepting and believing, correct? Yes? Now you can say, well, something should change with faith. You may want to make that argument, but if you're not careful, you're going to say faith produces it. Now you're, that faith would then be the thing that gets you an infused righteousness, which then destroys the entire gospel. Does that make sense? In other words, I'm going with the second part of that, and I'm ignoring the first right now. All right? Does everyone understand what I'm saying here? Right? We believe faith is believing, and by faith I am declared righteous. I'm not made righteous, I'm declared to be righteous. Does everyone understand that distinction? That the word of God is not rightly divided when the preacher pre- preach or when the preacher describes faith as the thing that produces a change in us. There is that is that e- easier to say? I wanted to use the words love and reformation because that's the words they use, but we'll change that. Does that make any sense? What do we think? If you don't think it makes sense, please say something. Here's your opportunity to say you're wrong. It's, it's, it's okay. No, nobody's going to say that I'm wrong. Let me see if anyone on the internet is saying I'm currently wrong. Okay. Okay, nope. So far, nobody's posting that I'm wrong on the internet. Okay. It'll be a few minutes, but sooner or later, it'll show up. Okay. Anybody got a question with this one? Does everyone understand what I'm trying to say? That, and, their, and their point that they're making is that something goes wrong when preachers start pre- to preaching about faith. They say that there's two possible problems, right? That I say, oh, you just believe and you accept these truths, but you don't change or you're living a mortal sin. Well, that's wrong. Well, that causes problems. We've all acknowledged the problems that cause. And then say, secondly, if you preach that, hey, your faith produces this change. Now, we agree with them on the second one, right? Yes? No, we don't agree? Yes, we don't believe it produces change. Okay, we, we, no, okay, now make sure we understand this, okay? So I'll make sure, because I feel like now there's confusion. All right, let me read this second one again. The Word of God is not rightly divided. If, if we preach that faith makes a person righteous and saves him for the reason that it produces in him love and reformation of his mode of living. I am saying that that is wrong and I'm agreeing with them that that is wrong and here's the reason that it's wrong. Let me make sure we understand this. If I look at Bobby and say, okay, Bobby, you believe. You had faith. Now that faith should produce a change. Here's what I've just said. I've now just made the argument that by faith, you received what? 
and infused righteousness. And that infused righteousness will produce change. And how do I know Bobby had faith? By the change. That is not preaching faith bringing in imputed righteousness. I got some looks here like, no, I don't have a clue what I'm talking about. Does everyone understand what I'm trying to say? All right, let's go back to basics, all right? All right, remember, there's two systems of justification. What are the two systems? Imputation and infused. What does imputation say? You believe faith and you are declared to be righteous and righteousness is imputed or accredited to your account. Does that make you righteous in practice? No, it does not. All right? The Catholic system was you believe and you get what? Infused with righteousness. And then you must cooperate with it and strengthen it. How do you strengthen it? Sacraments. The church. Right? Penance. All, oh, sacrament. Go through the sacraments. And you must cooperate with it. What happens if you commit a, a, a mortal sin? You're no longer in a state of grace. You have to get back into a state of grace. But you see how they believe your faith gives you a righteousness that you struggle with. We as evangelicals, we use the same language. We use the same language because we'll say, no, if you have faith, it will change you. Well, if you're going to say faith changes you, you're saying faith gave you an infused righteousness. That's Catholicism. Faith gives us an imputed righteousness. Does that make sense? Are we sure? Not our righteousness. So in other words, Bobby can be a believer. Mr. Goodlett can be a believer. Both can believe in Christ. And guess what? Bobby may not be and may demonstrate a lot of a lack of righteousness. Maybe Mr. Goodlett shows a little bit more righteousness, but that doesn't call into question his salvation because his salvation is based off an imputed one. And guess what I can't use to judge an imputed righteousness? Actions. How come I can't use actions to judge an imputed righteousness? Imputed is just, it's, it's given to you. Right? It's like, okay, I believe, boom, I'm declared holy, perfect, righteous, sinless. But I'm still a sinner. Now, I can't judge that. I can't look at Bobby and go, okay, do, do, I don't see any imputed righteousness. If I, want, if I want to look for imputed righteousness, where do I look? I no longer look to Bobby. I look to Christ. And guess what I see? Kept the law, holy, perfect, righteous. So then when I look back to Bobby, what do I see? I look to... I, a new creature in Christ, old pass away. Not practically, but positionally in that. So I'm arguing that the word of God is not rightly divided when we preach faith as the thing that obtains the change. Faith is the thing that obtains the imputed righteousness, not a practical righteousness. They are, does everybody understand? The book is agreeing with us on the second part. The first part, we don't know what in the world they're talking about. The second part, they are in agreement with. Does everyone understand? So let me read that again, because I was getting some weird looks, and I think people are like, what is he talking about? This makes absolutely no sense. Okay, stay with me here. All right, everybody ready? Okay. The word of God is not rightly divided when the preacher preaches or describes faith as if faith makes a person righteous and saves him for the reason that it produces in him love and reformation of his mode of living. They are saying that is wrong and we are in agreement with that part. The first part is confusing us. I'm throwing out the first part right now. I want to come back and, and well, I was going to ask a question when I want to make sure we have all of this down. So, the Word of God is not rightly divided when we do what? I want everyone to state this in their own language. Right. It does not produce righteousness in us. 
Faith is the, is the thing that brings the imputed righteousness to our account. How, why was Abraham declared to be righteous? By faith. Remember we've studied this in Romans for like a hundred years, right? Okay? How, how was Abraham, de- why was he declared to be righteous? Why was David declared to be righteous? Why was Samson declared to be righteous? Lot, how in the world can Lot be described as being righteous in the New Testament? By faith. Not by their actions. Not by their actions. Lot is obviously viewed as a believer in the New Testament. Agreed? You don't think a person would be described as a believer who offers up his daughters to be used by all the men of the city and then gets drunk and has physical relations with his daughter, not just once, but a second time, to produce children. There's some major issues going on in that situation, yes? And guess what he's declared in the New Testament to be? A righteous man. Everybody in us would never describe that man as righteous. We'd describe him as a sick, disgusted, we would have words we probably can't use to talk about that guy. Agreed? How can it be possible that he described to be righteous? Because by faith, he is declared to be righteous. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, I'll just ask the question. When it comes to this distinction between law and gospel, is there something else that we can preach about faith that would obliterate this distinction, that would be done incorrectly. Because they they tried to offer one at the beginning, but we think that they're actually contradicting themselves. Well, what is something else we could say that would be incorrect? I'll just let you think about it because of time, right? Because I don't want to, I don't want to waste all of our time. But I want you to think about what else we could say. Yeah, because we're already over time. Right? So uh, we'll just do one more. But I, we'll come back to that of other things that we can say in regards to faith that would destroy the proper distinction between law and gospel. They tried to offer one at the beginning, but they kind of confused it, right? Because they're basically saying, "Wait a minute, someone just can't believe and live in mortal sin." Well, that begins to call into question then what faith is or isn't, and who gets to judge when you have faith or don't have faith. That's always impossible, all right? Here's the last one for tonight. Everybody ready? What number will this be? 11. We made it pretty far today. Three hours and we made it to 11. All right, here we go. All right, the Word of God is not rightly divided when there is a disposition to offer the comfort of the gospel only to those who have been made contrite by the law, not from fear of the wrath and punishment of God, but from the love of God. All right, now don't, when I, when I read these, don't write them down because we have to work through them. All right, let's read this again. All right, here we go. Everybody thinking? The word of God is not rightly divided when there is a disposition to offer the comfort of the gospel only to those who have been made contrite by the law not from fear of the wrath and punishment of God, but from the love of God. This one we're going to have to take a minute. We can't take too many minutes, but let's try to go through this. All right? Once again, what's the issue? Not rightly dividing the word of God. The issue here is when there is an offer, when there's an offer, uh, when we're offering the comfort of the gospel, but only to those who have been made contrite by the law of God, not from the fear of the wrath and punishment of God, but from the love of God. Now, this is interesting. This seems to be saying, if Bobby feels contrite and broken about his sin, not because of his fear of the wrath of God, but because of the love of God, then I should not offer comfort. I'm not so sure about this. All right? Because this, well, what, what becomes the problem here? Now I've got to go, okay, Bobby, why do you feel bad about your sin? 
Well, but God loves me so much, I just feel broken. Well, Bobby, that's, that's not the reason to be broken over your sin. You should be broken over your sin because you're in fear of judgment and because God hates sin. Okay, I, I'm not, I, I don't know if I have to start drawing that kind of distinction. Agreed? Here's what I'm going to say. You ready? The word of God is not rightly divided. When we limit who we preach the gospel to. We do not rightly divide the word of God when we limit who we preach the gospel to. Now, they may, they may offer some things to, con- to change this or go with this, but let me just stay here. Now, I do agree that I should preach the gospel to whom? To everyone, but I do believe I should preach the law first. Right? But, if I meet someone who's broken over their sin, I don't believe you need to spend 30 minutes trying to figure out why Bobby is broken over his sin. I need to hear that he's broken over his sin and and offer the gospel to him. But can you think of some situations, and I know this may get a little controversial, but we're going to say it anyway. Can you think of some situations in the modern evangelical church where some people don't want to offer the gospel to someone? There are those, there are those who see some people who struggle with certain sins as they can't be recipients of the gospel because they struggle with that sin. And that, you can never create a list of sins saying you don't deserve the gospel because you struggle with these sins. Now the issue is, if they don't struggle with the sin, justify the sin and say that sin is okay and I have no reason to feel guilty, well then you can't preach the gospel to that. But if you come to someone going, yes, I know this is wrong. Yes, I know it's a sin, but I struggle with it. The evangelical world likes to come along and go, well, you can't have the gospel. But clearly, you can't be saved because you keep struggling with it. I'll, I'll just try to give the example as blunt as I can, and I apologize if it offends anyone. But it has to be said because this is a problem in the modern church. There are those who struggle with same-sex attraction. And we have this mindset within the evangelical church that says, hey, you struggle with same-sex attraction? You can't be saved. Because no one who's saved will struggle with same-sex attraction. Well, that is bizarre to me. Because I don't know if you've ever met saved people who are not homosexual but heterosexual because they seem to struggle with a lot of opposite-sex attraction. So when one becomes saved as a heterosexual, do all of your sexual desires and sins go away? Okay, only Bobby's the only one. Bobby's the only one who has a problem still, okay? Everyone else is good, all right? Mr. Gill is like, I'm not going to say it. Okay, no, but no, they don't go away. Amen? So why would we expect them to go away for the others? So we have a tendency to say, no, you don't get the gospel. You get condemnation. You get condemned. You get condemned. And almost in what we're saying is this. You get condemned until you what? Until you change. Right. And look, we, we may not understand it. We may not like it. It may make us uncomfortable based on the way we're raised, maybe based off a number of factors. But that's irrelevant. To, from a theological perspective. The theological perspective is, guess what? You struggle with that sin. I don't understand your sin. Makes no sense. I never have a problem with that sin. But I got my own. Like, I don't understand alcoholism. Makes no sense to me. If I was lost and I was an atheist, I would not touch alcohol for them for a million dollars. My, my issues with alcohol has nothing to do with my Christianity. My issue with alcohol is watching too many alcoholics destroy their family, kids get beat, horrible things happen because of alcoholism. I'm like, why would I drink something that could cause me to become an alcoholic that becomes dependent on it and destroy my life when I can drink a million things without alcohol? 
I was on a cruise ship. I had all kinds of drinks. I got them all without. Same mixed drink. No alcohol. And you say, well, that's because you're religious. Has nothing to do with my religion. If I was a Satanist, I wouldn't touch this stuff. Because I don't want to destroy my life. Isn't that weird? I say Satanist and the thunder. I say Satanist and thunder like me. Okay, if we're superstitious, we'd be like, well, that's the end of this sermon. Okay, no. All right, that was funny. All right, okay. But you get the point. I don't understand that sin. So if so, if Bobby comes to me and like, man, I keep struggling with alcoholism, I'd be like, Bobby, what is your... Pr- You're not saved! Just quit drinking! Here's ten rules. Right? But what does Bobby need to start with? If he knows he's guilty, he knows he's a sin, he needs the gospel. I don't limit it because I don't understand the sin or I don't like the sin. No matter the sin, gospel, if they are broken over their sin, they need the gospel. Don't limit it. I know that's controversial. Because in the modern church, especially when it comes to homosexuality in the modern evangelical church today, the conservative evangelical church says, you can't be saved and struggle with same-sex attraction. And I'm like, how, is, how can you say that? When you've got... What you're with any sin, exactly. If they're going to be consistent. You may struggle with a sin your whole life. Now, do I excuse Bobby's sin? No, but if he's broken, what do I give him first? Not rules, the gospel. The gospel goes to anyone. We don't limit it. I don't try to figure out, Bobby... Why, why, why do you feel bad about your sin? Oh, because you know God loves you so much? Well, that's the wrong reason. I, I'm not going to go down that. That just seems crazy. If you're broken over your sin, you know what you need is gospel. If you're not broken over your sin, what do you need? Law. Don't make it more complicated than that. I don't need to figure out why Bobby is. Because, you know, people will do this all the time. Well, the only reason that person is apologizing and the only reason they're confessing is because they got caught. I can't stand when Christians say that. We'd have been sitting there looking at David. Oh, David. Oh, now you feel bad. Now you feel... Oh, yeah, David only feels bad because he got busted. Who cares what leads to you feeling bad? Right? If you're broken, I don't care what broke you. The only cure for the brokenness is not law, it is gospel. Does that make sense? Now, I know we're in that. Am I excusing any sin? Because I'm going to get emails going, you always think that that's sin. No, I, sin is sin. I just know whatever sin you struggle with, I got my own sin. I don't understand some of that struggle. I don't have a problem with it. But trust me, I got my own. And if I can, I've been a Christian since I was a teenager, and I still struggle to this day with sin. Don't look shocked. You do too. So then how can I look to someone else and go, you can't be saved and struggle with that? No, you can. Because guess what the God, you know why I know you can? And this is where, this is, do you see where the evangelical church messes up law and gospel? Do you know Why? Many churches would say, and I just keep using Bobby as an example because I don't want to put any of the teenagers on the spot, but if, 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 if someone is struggling with same-sex attraction, right, you know why we, the church would say, you can't be saved and struggle with that? Because we destroy law and gospel, and what do we say? The gospel or faith produces what? A change. We preach an infused righteousness. And imputed righteousness would be, it doesn't make your sin struggle with sin go away. It just declares you to be righteous, even though you continue to struggle with that sin. Or, go, say it, Bobby, to sin. Nobody likes to say that. But, we like to th- but that, if we believe in imputed righteousness, that's the reality. And imputed righteousness doesn't make you... Look, I bet you there's teenagers who go to church with, or go to school with other kids who claim to be Christians, Right? Do y'all go to school with anyone who claims to be? There's no one. Okay, yes. And I bet you know some of them do some pretty messed up stuff, right? I mean, I'm, you too. You probably as well. But okay. But, but you get the idea. Because it happens that way. I mean, I went to school with kids who claim to be Christians. And I'd be like, oh my goodness gracious. 
I think they, I think they come to school going, okay, I read the Ten Commandments this morning for my devotional time, and I'm going to break all of them in the first period, okay? And you're like, whoa, okay, can you slow down? Can you at least save to the other five to after lunch, okay? But, and you're like, what is wrong with them? Well, the same thing that's wrong with you. You say, well, they're not saved. Be very careful. Because you may be saying, you're not saved. Their sins may be open to the public. Yours may be in private, but we're all sinners. If they believe in Christ, now if they're broken over their sin, what do they need to hear? Gospel. If they're living in blatant sin and don't care, what do they need to hear? Law. But we don't hold back the gospel to people. The only, the only time we would hold the gospel back is for what reason? Only temporarily to preach the law to them. Then immediately give them the gospel. All right, we'll stop there. All right, is that helpful? Maybe? All right, if you have questions, you can ask All right, afterwards. All right. Lord God, we come before you this evening. I know these distinctions can be very hard to grasp, but I hope that we will not get frustrated and we will work through them until we have a good grasp of exactly what this means so we understand the practical implications it has for every one of our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...